My name is Lily Madden, and I'm a proud Aranda, Bundjalung, Kalkadun woman from Gadigal country. The Daily Oz acknowledges that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and pays respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We pay our respects to the first peoples of these countries, both past and present. Good morning and welcome to The Daily Oz. It's Tuesday the 17th of October. I'm TDA's political journalist, Tom Crowley. I'm Billy Fitzsimons. I am the editor here at The Daily Oz. Good to be with you, Billy. At the start of the month, an ongoing conflict in the Middle East boiled over when Hamas launched a surprise wide-scale attack on Israel. In response, Israel declared war on Hamas, saying the military would use all of its strength to destroy Hamas's capabilities. As you listen, this morning Israel is preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza. We'll unpack all of that in the deep dive. But first, Billy, what's making headlines this morning? Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and opposition leader Peter Dutton have addressed the failed voice referendum proposal in Parliament. On the first sitting day after the referendum, Dutton called for Albanese to apologise to the Australian public for going ahead with the referendum, which the opposition described as divisive and poorly managed. The Prime Minister said no Australian believed the status quo for First Nations people was satisfactory and called for a much greater national awareness from the referendum to be turned into a national purpose to find the answers. Hannah Rafiti Mapey Clark will become New Zealand's youngest MP in 170 years. The 21-year-old received more votes than her opponent Nanaya Mahuta, the longest-serving female MP and the now former Minister of Foreign Affairs of New Zealand. A 66-year-old man has died after being attacked by his dog in his southern Tasmanian home. The man was attacked on Sunday night and suffered serious injuries to his lower legs. A 64-year-old woman was also hospitalised with serious injuries to her lower limbs. The dog was euthanised by a local council officer. And the good news, the A-League women's season launched over the weekend with record-breaking attendance. 11,471 people were at Allianz Stadium for Sydney FC and the Western Sydney Wanderers' first game of the season, up from the previous record of just under 10,000 at a domestic women's football match, capitalising on the success of the Matildas. Okay, Tom, so you have been on the pod for most of last week talking about the voice referendum. But during that time, there's been another major news story unfolding on the other side of the world in Israel and Gaza. And that's what you're going to take us through today. Now, the first thing to say is that behind this story sits an enormous amount of history and context. And we have to acknowledge that we know there are a lot of sensitivities here. And we also want to acknowledge that we know there's no way we can ever explain what is happening here in a 15-minute podcast. But Tom, let's start with the news. What has happened in the past week? Thanks, Billy. So the story begins last Saturday when the organisation Hamas launched a surprise attack from Gaza into Israel. That attack killed over 1,000 people, many of them civilians. The Israeli military was caught off guard, but it responded by declaring war. And what has followed is the most intense week of conflict in the region in decades. And we want to explain exactly what happened in the past week in more detail. But I think before we do that, let's take a step back. So Hamas, Gaza, Israel, there will be a few places and groups there that some listeners may know very little about. What do we need to know about this part of the world to understand this unfolding story, Tom? Uh, There's a lot, and this is where it could easily become a a 10-hour podcast and not a 10-minute one. 
and, and I encourage people to, to read and listen much more widely than what we're able to get through today. There is certainly a lot to understand here, but I'll try to outline maybe just a very basic history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I'll begin, I think, with how the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel in the form that we know it today, was established. So the idea of establishing a modern state of Israel, a Jewish state in the religious homeland in the Middle East, really emerges in the 1900s. It's an idea that builds momentum in the early 1900s, uh, but then in 1948 it really gets adopted by the international community. It gets the support of the United Nations. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, in the aftermath of World War II, the United Nations throws its support behind that idea. Now, the area that we're talking about here for the state of Israel in the Middle East uh, was called Palestine and was already home to the Palestinian people. And so what the United Nations came up with in 1948 was the idea that there should be two states, Israel and Palestine. And it drew up a map of where those two states should be within this area of territory. This was challenged and contested very heavily. It led to many very deadly wars in the region Many Palestinians were displaced in those wars and what followed was a, a decades-long territorial dispute which is still unresolved. It's, it's still the conflict that we're talking about today. Most of the world, including Australia, the UN, remain committed to this idea of a two-state solution of both an Israel and a Palestine but no such solution has been reached. We don't have time to go into all, all the details of the many wars uh, that follow from 1948 to the present day or the many different changes that there are to the map over that period. Again, I encourage people to read more widely if it's something that you're interested in. But to understand this week's news, I think you know, we sort of fast forward and zoom into a particularly contentious area of territory, which is the focus of the story in the last couple of weeks, and that's the territory of Gaza. So Gaza was not part of the land that was initially mapped out as part of Israel by the United Nations. But from 1967, following one of the wars that I mentioned, uh, it was occupied by Israel. And that occupation, as well as the occupation of another territory called the West Bank, was widely viewed, including by Australia, as a violation of international law by Israel. Then in 2005, Israel removed its troops and settlers from inside Gaza and moved outside. A short time afterwards, Gaza comes under the control of the organisation Hamas. Now, Hamas is classified by Israel as a terrorist organisation and that classification also gets adopted by the US, Australia and many other countries. It gets weapons supplied to it by Iran and it's dedicated essentially to the view that the state of Israel is illegal and illegitimate and seeks the destruction of Israel. So Israel pulls out of Gaza but surrounds it with uh, a blockade, a fence basically, around the parts of Gaza that border Israel which is most of it. So Israel's fence, which exists to this day, means that it controls largely who goes in and out. Residents inside Gaza mostly can't leave into Israel. There's also a small section of the border that borders Egypt, and Egypt also keeps that shut for its own reasons. And so inside Gaza, you have a population that is basically unable to leave. It's one of the most densely populated places on the planet. You have two million people crammed into, I guess to picture it, it's it's a small coastal strip of land. I think it goes only for about, you know, sort of 30, 40 kilometres. A lot of the people in there are displaced people, displaced Palestinians in, in wars of, of decades previous. And there's significant poverty in there. About 80% of the population of Gaza relies on humanitarian aid. Okay, so let's return to last Saturday's attack. So how did this attack happen? So the answer effectively is that Hamas fighters broke through the fence. So it began with a barrage of missiles from Hamas fired into Israel. 
But then amid the chaos created by those missiles, you had about a 1,000 fighters who broke through the fence and into Israel. It took everybody by surprise, certainly took the Israeli military by surprise. So these fighters run into Israel and commit murder en masse, basically, and I should warn people at this stage that some of the things that I'm about to describe could be quite distressing. In total, more than 1,000 people are killed. Many of those are civilians, uh, including children and babies, the elderly. Uh, You have people taken out of their homes in villages. There are attendees at a music festival uh, where at least 260 young people were killed. Uh, And these killings carried out in a manner that's quite chilling and public and graphic. So Hamas films a lot of the attacks and a lot of that footage has been released and circulated online. And there are hostages taken. We now know 199 people were taken back into Gaza as hostages, again, including civilians, young and old, including some foreign nationals too, and that's where they remain. So Hamas launches this wide-scale surprise attack on Israel. They didn't see it coming. How does Israel respond? Israel responds by declaring war almost immediately. Its stated aim is to completely eliminate Hamas. It sends... uh, heavy barrage of missiles into Gaza. It hits all sorts of things there, including residential buildings. So far, well over 2,000 people, again, including many civilians, have been killed in Gaza by that bombardment. Israel also then announces what it calls a siege. So it cuts off the supply of food, water, power, fuel, medicine into Gaza, again, remembering that Israel's fence arrangements mean that it controls a large part of that border. There's only a small section that borders Egypt and Israel is is bombing that section. So it maintains that siege. In the last 24 hours, Israel says it has recommenced the water supply to the southern part of Gaza. Uh, But for several days, that siege continued and at least in part, it continues. And then Israel also announced a ground invasion, so all-out war. Again, the nature of both the bombardment and the ground invasion is that there are a number of civilians in Gaza, two million people who live here who are caught up in this. On Friday, in anticipation of its ground invasion, Israel sends a message telling people who live in the northern half of Gaza to relocate south to get out of harm's way because Israel is, is planning to begin its attack in the north. You have Hamas telling people to ignore that order. There's general confusion. Some people leave, some people don't. But regardless, the UN, which has ground staff, humanitarian staff in Gaza, says this order is impossible to follow. You have one million people in the northern half of Gaza and the UN says you can't physically move them all that quickly. You've got hospital patients, old people who can't move. There's no fuel for many people's cars. You have hospitals overflowing. The south itself is already crowded and doesn't necessarily have the capacity to take all of these people. There's also questions over whether the south of Gaza itself is safe. There have been some reports of people being killed while they're moving from north to south. But Israel's given that directive. It extended the original deadline that it set for that directive and you know, said it was giving people more time to relocate to the south. It's clear, though, in general, all throughout Gaza in a very small section of land, there are a very large number of civilians uh, who will be caught up in, in any attack. Of course, things change very quickly, and by the time you listen to this, it's possible there will have been further developments since the time that we recorded. So how has the international community responded to this? I think with horror all around, it's been a very upsetting development in general in the last fortnight. I guess if I start with the West led by the US, the first thing that many countries did, including the US and Australia, is condemn in the strongest terms the the acts of terrorism by Hamas. Australia and the US are allies of Israel and most Western countries have recognised Israel's right to defend itself. 
So self-defence is generally recognised under international law as a legitimate reason to declare war, and the view expressed by Australia and the US is that Israel's declaration of war is legitimate. In fact, the US, as in the past, provided military support for Israel and it's pledged to provide more of that support in the fight against Hamas. So that's been a big part of the response in the West. But there is another element to the international response, including from the US and Australia, and that's focused on the idea of the rules of war, war crimes. So war has rules as are recognised under international law for all combatants. And it is firstly widely agreed that Hamas's initial attack amounted to a war crime, killings of civilians, the deliberate targeting. But countries like Australia who recognise Israel's right to declare war have also cautioned Israel to make sure that in its response it abides by the rules of war. Can you explain what actually is an example of a war crime? There are a few. I think the main one in various forms is you can't deliberately target civilians or do things deliberately that harm civilians, basically. A lot of the rules of war are around protecting civilians who are not combatants in the war from getting caught up in it. And so, again, I guess clearly when you look at the initial act by Hamas, international leaders have described that attack on civilians as a war crime. But also it can extend to acts like depriving civilians of food, water, power and essentials. And that's where concern has emerged from figures at the UN and from others, including in Europe, about the possibility that Israel has committed or may be about to commit war crimes of its own in response to Hamas's attack. Israel itself says it is staying within the rules. It points to the warnings that it issued to civilians to move from the north to the south to stay out of harm's way as an effort that it was making to protect civilians. What we do know in general is that thousands of people have been killed, including a a very large number of civilians. So more than 1,400 Israelis, including very many innocent civilians, were killed by Hamas. Thousands of Gazans, innocent civilians, have been killed already in the response And it seems sadly inevitable as this conflict continues to escalate that thousands upon thousands more civilians will die. So this seems like a really large question. What happens next? Yeah, I don't think anybody knows. No one really saw this attack coming at the moment that it did. And so we're only really at the beginning of thinking about what might happen next. There are so many ways that this could escalate even further. So for one thing, and one thing that we're watching very carefully, is that neighbours could get involved. So the extremist group Hezbollah, based in Lebanon, there's been some fear that it might join Hamas in the fighting against Israel. There have been some exchanges of fire between Israel and Syria. Uh, There's a big watch on Iran, which has heaped praise on Hamas, praised the attack, and there's great concern about whether Iran might join a war if Israel were to enter Gaza. That would make it a very big international incident. Really, any of these escalations would kick it up another notch. And it could even at that point suck in the United States, who've already increased their military presence in the area. They describe that as a deterrence, but there's that looming possibility as well. So this thing could get a whole lot bigger and fast. But even just focusing on Israel and Hamas, it's really hard to see how this ends quickly and without an enormous loss of life. Tom, thank you so much for taking us through that very complex topic. And Sam and Zara will be back tomorrow. 